Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnamevavasishyate Filled full with Brahman are the things we see. Filled full with Brahman are the things we see not. From out of Brahman floweth all that is. From Brahman floweth all, yet is it still the same. Good morning. Today's talk is entitled The World of the Upanishads. And it may seem a little strange that I'm going to begin speaking not about the Upanishads, but about a masterpiece of the American theater. <clears throat> uh, the play Long Day's Journey into Night by Eugene O'Neill is also a masterpiece of <clears throat> understanding a look into the human condition. And so we're going to begin by speaking about that. The play centers on a family, the Tyrone family, and it takes place within one day in the life of this family. This is a family that is connected by ties of intertwined love and hatred, and the relationships are most often centered on blame, recrimination, and negativity. <clears throat> the mother of the family, Mary, lives in denial. At the beginning of the play, she dismisses her younger son Edmund's cough as a mere summer cold, when in fact it could be something far more serious. She herself is living in denial over her own morphine addiction. She keeps mentioning that she has to keep taking the medicine for the pain in her hands, the arthritis. <clears throat> At the same time, she is living with shattered dreams, for as a young girl, she had wanted to be either a nun or a concert pianist. Instead, she fell in love with an actor, James Tyrone, and married him. James is living also with the guilt of having betrayed a God-given talent. He had the capacity to become one of the greatest Shakespearean actors of his time, and he threw it all away on a cheap, money-making play that ran for years. And as a result, he made a lot of money, and he lost his acting ability. And this is what he lives with. The oldest son... Jamie confesses toward the end of the play to his younger brother that the younger brother Edmund never succeeded because Jamie always found ways to keep that from happening. He was insanely jealous of his younger brother. And to cope with his own failure, he resorts to drink. And finally, there's the younger brother, Edmund, who is a visionary and the only spot of light in this otherwise bleak play. Edmund has been away working on ships, sailing around the world, and he's come home because he's ill. And on the day of the play, he receives a diagnosis of consumption. In 1912, when the play takes place, that could have been a death sentence. <clears throat> Towards the end of that day, he and his father engage in a conversation where the father kind of confesses to him what makes him tick. And at the end of that, the most remarkable scene in the play occurs. This is just a couple of minutes out of three hours, <clears throat> but it is so extraordinary that I have to read it to you. The younger son, Edmund, touched by the fact that his father, who's really leveled with him for the first time, decides also to share something very private with him. And so this is his monologue from the middle of Act Four. This is Edmund speaking to his father. You've just told me some high spots in your memories. Want to hear mine? They're all connected with the sea. Here's one. When I was on the square head, square rigger, 
bound for Buenos Aires, full moon in the trades, the old hooker driving 14 knots. I lay on the bowsprit, facing astern, with the water foaming into spume under me, the masts with every sail white in the moonlight towering high above me. I became drunk with the beauty and singing rhythm of it, and for a moment I lost myself, actually lost my life. I was set free. I dissolved into the sea, became white sails and flying spray, became beauty and rhythm, became moonlight and the ship and the high, dim-starred sky. I belonged, without past or future, within peace and unity and a wild joy, within something greater than my own life or the life of man, to life itself, to God, if you want to put it that way. Then another time, on the American line, when I looked, was lookout in the crow's nest on the dawn watch, a calm sea that time, only a lazy ground swell and the slow, drowsy roll of the ship, the passengers asleep and none of the crew in sight, no sound of man, black smoke pouring from the funnels behind and beneath me, dreaming, not keeping lookout, feeling alone and above and apart, watching the dawn creep like a painted dream over the sky and sea which slept together. Then the moment of ecstatic freedom came. The peace, the end of the quest, the last harbor, the joy of belonging to a fulfillment beyond men's lousy, pitiful, greedy fears and hopes and dreams. And several other times in my life, when I was swimming far out or lying alone on the beach, I've had the same experience became the sun, the hot sand, green seaweed anchored to a rock, swaying in the tide, like a saint's vision of beatitude, like the veil of things as they seem, drawn back by an unseen hand. For a second you see, and seeing the secret are the secret. For a second there is meaning. Then the hand lets the veil fall, and you are alone, lost in the fog again, and you stumble on toward nowhere for no good reason. What Edmund has confessed to in this remarkable monologue <clears throat> is the experience of transcendence. And so what does this have to do with the Upanishads? The Upanishads are all about transcendence. <clears throat> now the title of this morning's talk is the world of the Upanishads. And we can take that in two different ways. The world of the Upanishads, meaning the world, the environment that created the Upanishads, that whole setting in which the Upanishads <clears throat> took shape. The other meaning of the title would be the world described by the Upanishads. In other words, the worldview of the Upanishads. We're going to be looking at this from both angles, briefly from the first one, and then in great, greater detail with the second. <clears throat> there are two accounts of the origin of the Upanishads, speaking of the world that created the Upanishads. One is the traditional Hindu account, and the other would be a look at it from a standpoint of Western scholarship. The traditional origin says that the Upanishads are eternal and they are divine revelation. Now what does this mean? <clears throat> we spoke about transcendence. 
This experience of transcendence is the birthright of every human being because it is, in effect, self-knowledge. This is a knowledge and experience available to all men and women of all times and places throughout history. <clears throat> and so in this sense, the knowledge that is imparted by the Upanishads is truly eternal. This is the knowledge that never changes, the unchanging reality of the self, the Atman, Brahman, God, the divinity, call it what you will, that is unchanging. And so in that sense, what the Upanishads teach is eternal. The Upanishads are eternal wisdom. What about divine revelation? The Upanishads were not written by scholars who sat down and reasoned out a worldview or a system of philosophy. <clears throat> that would be a work of logic and a work of human origin. The Upanishads are records of experience. People who have had that experience of transcendence, who have known the divine at first hand, directly, and then later attempt to speak about it. And so in that sense, the Upanishads are revealed knowledge. The word itself, Upanishad, <clears throat> can be analyzed to mean three different things. Upa, ni, shad. One of the meanings is, Upa means near. Ni means down, and shad is to sit, sitting down near. And so we get this image of a disciple going to an enlightened soul, seeking knowledge, sitting at the feet of the guru, sitting at the feet of the seer, the sage, the holy man, and learning the secrets of God, our own existence, and the world we live in. <clears throat> That's one meaning of Upanishad. It can also mean upa, again, near, and nishad, to destroy utterly. Coming near to the truth utterly destroys the illusion that makes us think that we are what we, in fact, are not. The illusion that makes us take this world for a reality when in fact there is a far greater reality than this world of our experience. And finally, Upanishad can be interpreted to mean secret teaching, esoteric knowledge, secret doctrine. In other words, this knowledge of reality is something that is imparted from an illumined soul to a spiritual seeker directly in a very personal relationship. It is not knowledge for the masses to be disseminated widely. Now, Western scholars like to place everything in time, and so they say, well, how old are the Upanishads? And if you pick up almost any book on the Upanishads, you're going to find that they were written between around 600 BCE to about the beginning of the Common Era, possibly as early as 800 BCE. <clears throat> but that is definitely misleading, because Indian scholars, pundits, and the like, have been saying all along that the Upanishads are much, much older. They're thousands of years old. <clears throat> now, I know you didn't come here this morning for a history lesson, so I will not give you one. Uh, this whole study in itself is very, very interesting. But basically, the age of the Upanishads depends on the age of the Rig Veda, which is the earliest of all of the <clears throat> holy texts in Hinduism. The Samhita, or hymn collection, of the Rig Veda probably dates to around 2700 BCE to about 2000 BCE. The great German Indologist Max Muller, when studying the Vedas in the 19th century, suggested a date of 1200 BCE to about 1000 BCE. 
And even his fellow scholars were aghast at this and said, oh no, it has to belong to the third millennium. Muller himself tried to refute his earlier theory, which he admitted he had pretty much plucked out of thin air. But for some reason, it stuck. <clears throat> and so even today, we have these very late datings um, for the Hindu scriptures, when in fact, they are much older. <clears throat> in recent years, scholars, both Indian and Western alike, have been studying the Rig Veda Samhita in great detail, trying to discover clues in it as to its real age. And they have found, by correlating all of this information about climate and weather and rivers and civilization, ways of living, crops cultivated, and so on, they have found that there is a correlation between modern measurable scientific data and the information in the Rig Veda. And without doubt, the Rig Veda describes India as it existed, northern India, before 2000 BCE. I think we can safely say that the hymns of the Rig Veda, as they have come down to us, were formulated and composed definitively between about 2700 BCE and 2000 BCE. And the information contained in them is of even older origin, some of it, going back as much as 6,000 years. <clears throat> so the Rig Veda is that ancient. It follows that the Upanishads, which are the latest books of the Veda, are contingent on that dating. So I can say safely that we could date the Upanishads as we know them today to at least 1100 BCE, the earliest of them, and that the information they contain is far older. The two oldest Upanishads are the Brihadaranyaka and the Chandogya. And both of these are vast collections of far older material. They both draw on a common source that is much older, and we can connect that directly back to the time of the Rig Veda. So much for the age and the dating of the Upanishads. Uh, traditionally, there are a number of major or principal Upanishads and a number of minor Upanishads. If you ask, depending on whom you ask, we will find that there are 10 principal Upanishads or 11 or 13 or 16. <clears throat> uh, today we'll go with the idea that there are 11. The 10 that Shankara wrote commentaries on plus the Svetashvatara, which he also referred to frequently in commentaries on other works. <clears throat> The traditional order of the Upanishads is given as Isha, Kena, Kata, Prashna, Mundaka, Mandukya, Taitiriya, Aitiriya, Chandogya, Brihavaranyaka, and Svetashvatara. This is a traditional Indian dating. But when you study the texts and the language and analyze them, there is a historical dating. The Brihadaranyaka is by far the oldest, followed by the Chandogya, the Taitiriya, and the Aitiriya. These are the four oldest Upanishads, what we would consider the early period. There's a middle period to which belong the Kena, Kata, Isha, Svetashvatara, and Mundaka. And finally, a late period to which belong the Prashna and the Mandukya. Now, the Upanishads have a worldview. And we're going to talk about two different worldviews. One is, how do the Upanishads view the world out there, the exterior world, the world that we look at, the world that we experience our lives in? And then secondly, what about the inner world? What about the inner self that perceives and experiences this world? We have the outer world and the inner, and we're going to discuss both of these. The Upanishads look at the outer world through a process of observation, rational inquiry, <clears throat> and then they present this information in a way that will be helpful to us. There's a wonderful 
incident in the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad which concerns this curiosity with the outer world. Uh, a long time ago, there was a great king named Janaka, king of Videha, and he called a conference of scholars, of great sages and seers, to come to his kingdom and debate in the royal court. And as an incentive to get them there, he had a thousand cattle rounded up, and he had ten pieces of gold tied between the horns of each cow. <clears throat> and whoever won this scholarly debate and proved himself the greatest and wisest among these scholars would go home with this prize of the, ten, of the thousand cattle and the ten thousand pieces of gold. So kind of this is like one of the world's early quiz shows. Now, Yagnavalkya was a very great seer. He was a householder, he was married, but he was the greatest of the Upanishadic seers. So he went to Janaka's court, and he saw this field with a thousand cattle and 10,000 pieces of gold, and immediately he ordered his servant to drive the cattle home. This is before the debate. And the other scholars who had gathered there were aghast, and they thought, what effrontery, this man's got some nerve. He's declared himself the greatest among us, and we haven't even spoken yet. But that was Yagnyalka was like. He had this reputation for being a very brash and self-confident man. So the debate started, and one after another, he bested each of these scholars, and each one fell silent. <clears throat> then something quite remarkable happened. A woman got up named Gargi, Gargi Vachaknavi, <clears throat> and her father also was a great seer. And so she began to question Yagnyavalkya. And she began asking him about this world we live in. She said, if the whole world is woven on water, and she used this metaphor of weaving back and forth, of warp and woof. She said, if the whole world is woven on water, then on what is water woven back and forth? And he said, on air, Gargi. The world is woven back and forth on air. And she said, well, if the world is woven back and forth on air, then... <clears throat> What is air woven back and forth on? And so he said, that is woven back and forth on the world of the sky. Well, what about the world of the sky then? He said, that's woven back and forth on the world of the moon. And then this went on and on to speak of the sun, the moon, the stars, the gods, and so on, all the way to Brahma, the creator. And at this point, she's just about to ask again, and he says to her, do not question so much, Gargi, lest your head blow apart. He was trying to make a very important point here. She was asking about this physical world and trying to know about this and this and this, this infinite regress, and then what, and then what, and then what, and where is this all leading? And so he's trying to tell her, basically, Gargi, there is only so much information that you can cram into that head of yours before it's going to blow apart. There's a certain futility in all of this knowledge about the world. There's much more to life than this. So he tells her to shut up, and she does. She shuts up. Another scholar gets up and has a debate with Yagnavalka and again falls silent at Yagnavalka's superior knowledge. So then what happens? Gargi gets up again. And this time she's really defiant. And she says to her, to Yagnavalka, Yagnavalka, I have two more questions for you. And these two questions are like arrow-piercing foes. Now, if that isn't confrontational, I don't know what is. 
And then she turns to all of these assembled scholars and she says, if he can answer these two questions, then the rest of you better just give up. You know, he's won the prize. So he says, well, Gargi, ask away. And so she asks her question. This is my first question. That which is above the heavens, beneath the earth, and between the two. That which has been, that which is, and that which will be. On what is that woven back and forth? And he says to her, across space. And she says, well, namastestu, salutations to you. She said it a bit sarcastically. And so she asked her second question. And you know what? It's exactly the same question again. That which is above the heavens, beneath the earth, and between the two, that which has been, is, and will be, on what is that woven back and forth? And now Yajnavalkya knows that she is ready to receive this higher knowledge of Brahman. And so he speaks to her of Brahman, the imperishable, the imperishable Brahman beyond all description, this changeless reality. Knowing that alone, one reaches ultimate fulfillment. So this is a very beautiful teaching. <clears throat> And it is about how knowledge of this world, this inquiry, will eventually lead us to something greater than this world. <clears throat> now, the Upanishads also speak of an inner knowledge. And there's another story involving Yajnavalkya. This time he goes again to the court of King Janaka. And this is sometime after the debate. And we know it's after the debate because of the way the conversation opens. The king greets him and says, Ah, Yajnavalkya, what brings you here today to the court? Are you here to impart some spiritual wisdom, or are you just here for some more cows? And so Yajnavalkya agrees to give him some spiritual teaching. So Janaka says, Well, I have a question. Tell me, Yajnavalkya, what is it that lights our human experience? And Yajnavalkya says, The sun lights our human experience. By the light of the sun, we get up, we do our work, we go about the world, we see things, we cognize objects, and everything is fine. So Janaka says, well, <clears throat> what happens at night when the sun isn't shining? And Yajnivalka says, well then, our experience is lit by the light of the moon. Very well. The moon waxes and wanes. What happens on Amavasya, the new moon night, when there is no light? What lights our experience then? And Yajnavalka says, then we kindle a fire. Well, Janaka wanted to know, the fire burns out eventually, and after the flames are gone and there's no more light, what is it that lights our human experience? And Yajnavalka said, then it is speech that lights our human experience. If you're totally in the dark, you can be guided by my voice. I can tell you things, I can tell you where you are, I can tell you what to do. Very well. What happens if you're not there, if you're not speaking? What then is the light of my experience? And then Yajnavalkya says, the light of human experience, that is the self. The self is the light of human experience. And so then the king, Janaka, wants to know, well, what is this self of which you are speaking? And so Yajnavalkya takes him through this whole range of waking and dreaming and dreamless sleep. He analyzes the whole of the human experience. It strips away the body, the vital forces, the senses, the mind, 
the emotions, the intellectual processes, and even the sense of individual selfhood. And once all of that is gone, what left? what's left? What remains? Only the light of consciousness, that light of awareness without any content whatsoever. And here I'm going to read Yagnivalka's actual words describing this state because they're so beautiful. He says, <clears throat> speaking of the one who knows the self, he becomes clear like water, one, the seer without duality. This is his highest goal. This is his highest treasure. This is his highest world. This is his greatest bliss. On a particle of this very bliss, other creatures live. So here we've had the Upanishads taking a look at the outer world that we live in, our environment, and also the inner world of our experiences, what goes on in our minds and hearts. And something remarkable happens because in this inquiry, everything begins to become reconciled. <clears throat> we find that the macrocosm, this vast universe of galaxies of unimaginable vastness, and the microcosm, that inner space, that inner world in which we really live, are connected in some way. <clears throat> and so this is very interesting. Probably many of you remember as children having the experience of having a comic book or a newspaper where there's a puzzle, where there's a series of dots on the page with little numbers beside them. And you would take a pencil and you would follow the numbers and connect the dots. And when they were all connected, there was a picture. And so this is exactly what the Upanishads are doing. They're helping us to connect the dots. And the dots are all these different facets of our experience physical elements, physical objects, feelings, emotions, thoughts, intellectual processes, all of this. And we're beginning to connect these. And why? Why did you connect the dots in those puzzles when you were a kid? Because you were curious to see what the picture was going to be. And so we are curious about the bigger picture of life. This is what distinguishes human beings from all of the other life forms. I don't think that cows and tigers and jackals sit around wondering about who they are, where they came from, what the purpose of their lives are, where they're headed. But human beings do. They do just that. This curiosity is part of our natural humanity. And this curiosity also is addressed very beautifully in the Upanishads. The Shvetashvatar Upanishad is one of the middle period Upanishads. <clears throat> And the teachings are of the great seer, Shweteshvatara. And in the very first verse, he poses a series of rhetorical questions. He's posing them not because he wants to know the answers, but because he knows the answers and he wants to put the questions out there. And so he says, Seekers of the higher knowledge ask, What is the cause of the universe? Is it Brahman? From what are we born? By what do we live? In what is our permanence? Oh, knowers of Brahman, what law governs us whose lives run their course through happiness and all the rest? These are the perennial questions asked by men and women of every time and place. And they will continue to be asked as long as there are people living on this planet. Now, there are many wonderful things in this verse, and one of them is the last part. What law governs us whose lives run their course through happiness and all the rest? Suketareshu. 
Now, most often when you read this verse, translators will say what governs our lives that run their course through happiness and misery. Or they say through happiness and its opposite. But the Sanskrit, Sukhetareshu, is through happiness and all the rest. Sritashvatara has a positive view of life. It is not like this view of life that you see in Eugene O'Neill's play, where there is so much bitterness and suffering. He basically thinks the world is a good place. <clears throat> he recognizes that there is happiness, and that's the only thing he really mentions specifically, and then all the rest. Because yes, there is unhappiness. And there's a whole span of other experiences in between. Life is not merely black and white. It is this vast, multicolored experience. And he uses the metaphor of color later on in the Upanishad to make this clear. Now these words, sukha, happiness, and dukkha, mean more than just, oh, I'm happy in this moment because something good happened, or I am miserable because I have a pain in my arm, let us say. They mean general conditions, existential conditions. So sukha is existential well-being, and dukkha is existential dis-ease, unease, disquiet, the sense that there is something that is not right in our lives, something that causes us unhappiness, misery, pain, suffering in various degrees. <clears throat> now the origin of these words is fascinating, and the more we look at it, the more we will understand just exactly what he is trying to say here. They are both based on the word ka, which is a Sanskrit word meaning space. And in the olden days, ka was the space in the middle of a wheel through which the axle would go. And if a wheel was centered perfectly, it was said to be sukha. Its space is good because it was perfectly centered. And if you have a perfectly centered wheel, what do you get? You get a smooth ride. On the other hand, if the wheel is off-center, then it is called dukkha, badly centered. And that will give you a bumpy ride. And so dukkha is a bumpy ride through life with ups and downs, and sukha would be a smooth ride. Looking at this even more deeply, we can understand that this is a question of our own inner attitudes, our own inner experiences. <clears throat> and so this whole beautiful metaphor, which is very, very graphic about material objects, gives us a clue into the understanding of life. So, what is there about this world? Svetasvatara paints a very vivid picture of the world. He says in the fourth chapter that God, who is without form, without color, who is one, brings forth the many, which are many colored. And then he goes into these beautiful descriptions. He's actually addressing God at this point, the creator. And he says, you are man, you are woman, you are youth and maiden too. You are the old man tottering on his staff. <clears throat> Taking all these forms you face in every direction. You are the dark blue butterfly. You are the green parrot with the red eyes. You are the dark storm cloud pregnant with lightning. You are the seas, you are the changing seasons. All of this, all of this color the blue and the red and the green, the dark, the light, the golden flashes, the seasons. The seasons are constantly changing the color of the landscape. This Upanishad was composed in northern India, northeastern India possibly, 
The crop there is most likely rice. It could also have been wheat. When you plant rice in the early planting season, or wheat, the first shoots are a delicate, tender green. As they grow to maturity, the green deepens, becomes darker. And then when the crops are ready for harvest, they turn this beautiful gold. So the landscape is taking on all these different colors. And so Sri Tashvitara is really here praising the beauty of the world and saying this is all God's own self-expression. The world is an expression of the divine. But at the same time, then he reminds us, if the world is this wonderful and this beautiful, and if it brings us so much happiness, but also some unhappiness, what about that which created the world? If the world is this wonderful, that which created it must be immeasurably more wonderful, more magnificent. And so I'm just going to read you a representative selection of four verses from the Supanishad where he's talking about this God, this reality, this source from which the world comes. <clears throat> and basically what he's going to say here is that by knowing this source, by knowing the divine, we ourselves become that and we gain immortality and freedom, liberation, enlightenment. <clears throat> Here's what he says about this source, this God. He is subtler than the subtlest. In the midst of the unformed, the creator of everything, assuming many forms. He alone encompasses the universe, knowing that auspicious being one fully and forever goes to peace. His form stands not in the range of sight, no one sees him with the eye. They who, with the heart and mind, know him as abiding in the heart, they become immortal. One who is established in meditation knows the reality of Brahman as existing from all eternity, constant and untouched by anything within the creation. Knowing that effulgent being, one is freed from all fetters. This is to be known as abiding eternally within oneself. Beyond this, there is nothing further to be known. Now, Sri Tashvitara also gives us another insight, a very wonderful insight. At the beginning of the fourth chapter, he says, right before this wonderful outpouring of praise for the world and its beauties, right before that, he says that it is God who is one and without color, who brings forth this world of many colors. And then, in the second line of this verse, he says something very cryptic. It translates literally as, in the end, it all comes apart, and in the beginning, God. And this has puzzled scholars for a long while. The language is difficult, number one, because it's in ancient Vedic rather than in the Sanskrit of the later Upanishads. But it doesn't really seem to be complete. And most scholars say, well, there's something missing here. The grammar is wrong. The verse is corrupted. We have to rearrange things and try to make it all fit together. And none of these solutions work. They always raise more questions than they seem to answer. So let's just take him at his word. And in the end, it all comes apart and in the beginning, God. This is really wonderful. Because the verb to come apart, <clears throat> vieti, in the ancient Vedic times actually served two functions. It meant to come apart. Something that is created, put together out of parts, comes apart. But also it means to be diffused, to be extended. 
And so in the end, this whole world that God has created and manifested comes apart. But in the beginning, it is God who comes apart. God is the unity, the one. He who is one and without color. Ya ekaha avarnaha. So when the creation becomes manifest through all these names and forms and colors, we lose sight of the one, the essence, that Brahman, that infinite, ultimate consciousness, the Supreme Self, the Supreme Being. And so this is one process. There's one verb, vieti, describing the single process. When the world comes apart, we gain knowledge of the unity. All of the names and forms vanish into this experience of nirvikalpa samadhi, of the one, of Brahman, of non-duality. And then when the world is manifested, when we're perceiving the many names and the forms, we're so bedazzled by all that that the one is hidden from us. But it is one process just seen from these two different points of view, from the point of view of the enlightened or from the unenlightened. And so all of this hinges on the fact how we know the world, how we experience the world. To know means to experience. And so the Upanishads are basically about knowledge. If you were to say, what is the one theme that goes through all of the Upanishads, it is this knowledge, this knowledge of the self, of reality. And so there are so many stories in the Upanishads where we have a, uh, a seeker coming to a seer, to a teacher, asking for instruction in spiritual wisdom. We've seen examples of Yajnavalkya <clears throat> instructing a king there's another um, story in one of the Upanishads where a king and a seer meet, and this time the king turns out to be the teacher of the seer. It turns out that the king, Ajatashatru, knows more than the seer who has come. You also have seers who are instructing their sons. So you have the wonderful story where uh, Udalaka Aragni instructs his son Shvetaketu, and he says to him, Finally, that you are. You are that Brahman. Uh, that's another story. You have Yajnavalkya, also the seer, instructing his beloved wife, Maitreyi. Yajnavalkya, at that point, is about to embark on the third stage of life, where he leave his, leaves his household <clears throat> and becomes a spiritual seeker, a renunciant. And he's leaving all his wealth to her and instructions. And that dialogue is so beautiful, it's enough for a whole morning's lecture or more, but basically it contains the entire seed of the later Vedanta philosophy. It's extraordinary how much later Vedanta owes to this great man, Yajnavalkya. <clears throat> so we have all of these stories of people seeking knowledge. Another one of these stories um, is the setting for the Mundaka Upanishad, another of the middle period Upanishads. And there we have a great householder named Shaunaka, and it tells us right away, he's the Maha Shalaha. He is a great householder. It means he was well-established in life. He was wealthy. He had the respect of his community. He had everything going for him. And yet he approaches the seer, Angiras, with a question. He feels there's still something lacking. In spite of his wealth and his good reputation and probably his loving family and everything that he enjoys in life, in spite of all that, he feels that there is not that full fullness of satisfaction that he would like to have. 
And so he approaches this seer, Angiras, and he says to him, Kasmindu Bhagavo Vigyate Sarvamidam Vigyatam Bhavatiti. Revered sir, what is that? By knowing which all else is known. What is that by knowing which all else is known? And Angiras says to him, Well, Shanaka, first you must understand that there are two kinds of knowledge to be acquired. And note that he says two kinds of knowledge to be acquired. It means both of them are important. There is the aparavidya and the paravidya. There is the lower knowledge and the higher knowledge. And then he defines aparavidya as the Vedas and the branches of knowledge associated with the Vedas, six of them having to do with language and astronomy and um, ritual worship. This is what he calls the lower knowledge. And we can extend that to say all knowledge of the physical world is the lower knowledge. And he says it's important. But then he says there is a higher knowledge, a supreme knowledge, the paravidya. And that is the knowledge of the self. That is that knowledge by knowing which all else is known. And so then this Upanishad also becomes an instruction on these two different types of knowledge. And as we have seen from the dialogues of Yajnavalkya and Gargi, this knowledge of the world we live in is important because these are the tools we have to work with. We live in a body made of physical elements. We have a mind. We have our emotions. We have our intellects. We have our egos. And these are the tools by which we can realize our higher self, our true being. There's no other way that that's going to happen. And so what we have to do is to seek knowledge, seek understanding, <coughs> begin at the beginning, follow it one step at a time to where it will lead. <coughs> and so basically, Shaunaka is looking for that supreme knowledge, <coughs> which is the knowledge of the infinite self. Now this is an important word also. Brahman is infinite meaning totally without any limitation. It is not limited in time. It is not limited in space. It is not limited by any form of causality. So Brahman, the self, is infinite. That means there is nothing other than the self. <clears throat> Brahman is eternal. That doesn't mean that we are going to go on forever in time because time itself is not part of that ultimate reality. It is beyond time completely. It is timelessness. That is what eternity is. And finally, Brahman is beyond all causality. We in our lives are dependent upon this chain of cause and effect. What we do has consequences. We live with them. We are bound by them. Brahman does not act in that sense out of necessity, out of need, out of motivation. And therefore, there is nothing binding the infinite self. So this idea of infinitude is so important in Upanishads because basically Brahman is one, there is no second. That means Brahman is infinite, and we are that. <clears throat> one of the other Upanishads, the Chandogya Upanishad, also goes into this question. And here we have a seer named Sanat Kumara who is instructing the great scholar Narada. And this is also a very interesting reversal because Sanat Kumara is totally unschooled. Sanat Kumara means the eternal youth. So what we're talking about is a wisdom that is spontaneous, eternally young, 
fresh, never changing, never aging. And we have this great seer, Narada, who is so well-versed in all of the scriptures and all the philosophies, coming to this, this spontaneous young seer looking for this ultimate truth. And so Sanat Kumara says this very beautiful thing. This is in the Chandogya Upanishad. He says, the infinite is happiness. There is no happiness in the finite. Surely only the infinite is happiness where one sees nothing else, hears nothing else, understands nothing else, that is the infinite. But where one sees something else, hears something else, understands something else, that is the small. Truly, the infinite is the same as the immortal. The finite is the same as the mortal. And so our goal is to realize that infinite self. Svetashvatara tells us pretty much the same thing at the end of the fifth chapter of the Svetashvatara Upanishad. And this is the verse that he says. He says, that effulgent being, the auspicious maker of existence and non-existence, who brings forth the creation and its parts, who is called bodiless, who is to be grasped intuitively, they who know him lay aside the smallness of individuality. And so that is the secret to living a happy and fulfilled life, laying aside the smallness of individuality, this sense, this ego sense that I am this person, separate from all these other people, separate from all the other objects in the universe, and attaining that state where all of these boundaries vanish, the light of knowledge dissolves, dispels all the differences, all the separation, and what only remains is that unity of the absolute self. That is the basic teaching of all the Upanishads. I mentioned that knowledge is this thread that runs through them consistently. And this knowledge is summed up in what are called the four Mahavakyas, the great sayings. Every one of these says the same thing in a different way. The first one occurs in the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, and it is, this self is Brahman. I am Atma Brahma. Later in the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, or actually earlier in the text, we have the second Mahavakya, I am Brahman. This is what the realized soul can say, the enlightened seer. Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. And then we had in the Chandogya Upanishad, Udalaka instructing his son, Shwetakatu, saying, you are that, Tatvamasi, you are that same Brahman, that infinite self. And finally, what is that Brahman? What is that infinite self? The Aitareya Upanishad tells us, Prajnanam Brahma, Brahman, the infinite self, is pure awareness, this absolute light of consciousness. So that is basically the teaching, the essence of the Upanishads. Now, in Long Day's Journey into Night, you, um, Edmund had confessed to have having momentary flashes of this kind of experience, but they were very fleeting. They did not last. And the teaching of the Upanishads is that we are to become established in that knowledge, to become established in our own true being. And when we do that, then our whole lives become lived in God, illumined by God, for God, of God, knowing that there is nothing but the divine, that is the whole purpose of all of our spiritual practice. And so, this is the teaching that we find in the Upanishads. 
The Upanishads are also known as the Vedanta, meaning the books that come at the end, the anta, of the Veda. Veda means knowledge, anta means the end, the culmination. The Upanishads are the end of knowledge, the culmination of knowledge, the last word in knowledge. And because of that, we're going to let the Upanishads have the last word this morning. This is a uh, section of the Taittiriya Upanishad, where the Sir Bhrigu is learning from his father, Varuna. Brahman is joy, for truly, from joy all things are born. Once born, by joy they live, toward joy they move, and into joy they merge.